It's true. It's true. There are actually quite a few extraordinary women who are martial artists who also teach self-defense. And today's guest is one of those amazing women that I have had the good fortune to meet during the last few years. She is a jiu-jitsu competitor with a jiu-jitsu school. She has an incredible event called the Role Model Camp that is a camp for women who range from complete newbies and novices in the world of jiu-jitsu all the way up to extraordinary black belt competitors. We had an absolutely amazing conversation, and I know that you are going to just love listening to our exploration of the world of martial arts and the world of self-defense. Here we go. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the show that tackles the subject of women and violence head-on and shines the light on what women need to know and do to be safe. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Gillicourt-Rude. Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Today, my guest is somebody that I met over the summer at an event in Las Vegas and just absolutely loved her energy, loved what she was up to, and thought, my golly, she's got to come on the podcast. AJ Klingerman is a Nogi world champion purple belt. She's an ambassador for women's jiu-jitsu and has run multiple women's-only grappling camps and open mats. AJ also sits on the board and is an advocate for women's domestic violence charity called My Bruises Are From. AJ is very active in teaching and competing. She teaches four women's-only classes and four co-ed classes each week between the Indiana Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy and Endurance BJJ. AJ is the author of the instructional Dare to be Fearless, the Everyday Women's Guide to Self-Defense. She's very active in spreading jiu-jitsu and self-defense, teaching seminars for police departments, private companies, and one-on-one sessions. And I am so excited to have her on today. Welcome to the podcast, AJ. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this for ages. Yeah, we, we, we've been trying to connect, so I'm glad that we were finally able to. And yeah, I'm excited to do this. Yes, and I got to say, I am super pumped that I'm already signed up for your camp that's coming up in the spring. So I get to come and train with you, and that's also super yes. exciting. Yes, I'm very excited for camp. Since the day that the last camp ended, we've been planning what the next camp will look like. We have almost daily sessions where we're talking about you know what we're doing and how to make the best of it. And so I am so excited for it. Oh, that's great. Well, we're going to we're gonna talk about the camp a little bit later on. But right now, I would like to just give you some quick questions to get us really in the groove. Are you ready? Absolutely. All right. What is your favorite music to listen to when you're working out? Ooh, anything that's like a female anthem. <laughs> you got any particular favorite? Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, if it's just me and my best friend working out, then we'll listen to like some Lizzo, but I keep stuff very clean in the Academy. So we've been listening to a lot of punk music lately, but it varies. I have a wide array of music that I like, so I change it up quite a bit. That's pretty cool. Are you talking eighties punk? Right now, more like a kind of, I guess, two thousands punk. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Yeah, I was I was a punk back in the eighties, back in my college days. So I love that kind of music. Yeah, we're we're doing more like uh, some like you know Blink One Eighty Two or um, Same as Sunday, those types of bands. So great. Okay, what was your most unusual experience as a child? Ooh, unusual experience. Wow, that's a tough one. I don't. I don't know. It's a very tough question. <laughs> I don't think I have, I don't think that, you know, I, I feel like I led a very unusual life. Um, I spent a lot of time uh, either on the softball field or in the dance academy. I don't really feel like there was much that was super unusual. So that combination of softball and dance is an interesting one. What, what kind of dance were you doing? I grew up in a dance studio. So I started when I was three with tap. And then around five, I added ballet and jazz. I took about 11 classes a week 
through most of my, you know, like junior high, high school time of those three types. Mostly I did a little bit of tumbling, but I didn't start tumbling till I was like 14 and was already like the size I am now. So it was rough to try and tumble at that size <laughs> when I hadn't been doing it my whole life. So but yeah, a lot of tap jazz and ballet. Oh, that's neat. My, my oldest daughter is a dancer also. And she started as a three-year-old doing the traditional little ballet jazz and tap class and grew up to be a ballroom dancer. Yeah. That's awesome. Also as a martial artist, she got her first degree black belt when she was 10. Nice. What kind of martial arts? Basically Taekwondo. We mixed in some other things, but that was the base. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what was your first experience of feeling unsafe? I briefly thought about this when you asked about a weird experience as, or an unusual experience as a child. The first time I really remember, I guess, feeling unsafe, I lived on a corner and me and some other little girls from my neighborhood were playing in the backyard. I was probably 10 and um, they were four, five and eight. And this man kept riding his bike back and forth on you know, just, just, just passing our house, just watching us back and forth. And we definitely knew that it wasn't okay. So we made a plan. I made a plan. <laughs> that was the oldest and just said, all right, on the count of three, we're just going to like jump up and be like tag your it and like take off running and cut through the backyards to the neighbor's house and go in and tell their mom that, you know, this man was watching us. So that's what we did. We just acted like it was part of a game we were playing and we jumped up and took off running and went in and told our parents and then they went out looking for the man that was riding his bike. Wow. And how old were you then? I think I was about 10. Yeah. That's... Yeah. The, the little girls that were four and five ended up becoming my sisters. So they're my stepsisters, but yeah, they, they were, they were there with me and it was just, you know, how do we get away without causing suspicion or anything? Yeah, that's that's really amazing to hear that story because it really demonstrates that without any training whatsoever, you actually were able to do something that got yourself and the little girls to safety, which is great. And it's it kind of an interesting foreshadowing of what you do now. It really is. And, you know, it does show that my mom taught me to be very observant and, you know, kind of pay attention to what people were doing. And if something didn't feel right, you know, that gut instinct that, you know, it was okay to, to get away, to tell somebody and just things that we should definitely be teaching our children. Yeah, that's great. Okay. What is your favorite self-care practice? Favorite self-care, probably a bubble bath. That's probably one of my favorite things. I'm big on self-care. I actually do a self-care Sunday podcast every week and I do lots and lots of different things for self-care, but I love to take a, a bubble bath with lush bubbles because they're the best and about three pounds of Epsom salt and Arnica and all that. Oh, that's, that sounds great. I, I love the Epsom <laughs> salts thing. And I I didn't realize until recently that most people only put like a cup or something in the in the bath. I've always been like a whole bag dumper or a couple of bags dumper. <laughs> it sounds like you do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you need at least a couple pounds in there for sure. <laughs> All right, last quick question. What advice would you give young women today that you wish that you'd had when you were in your early 20s? Early 20s. Um, I think not respecting people's opinions that I wouldn't ask for. So, you know, especially, you know, when I was in my 20s, social media wasn't the thing that it is now. But especially with social media, like, I don't want young women or anyone to listen to the haters. If you wouldn't specifically ask for their opinion, because you value their opinion, definitely don't allow their opinion to affect you. Oh, that is right on. Yeah, that really resonates with me because I think that I spent a lot of time as I was growing up trying to gauge whether or not I was doing the right things by how other people reacted. 
Yeah, that's one of the, the beauties of growing older is you stop caring what other people think. <laughs> so if you could do that sooner, it'd be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Okay, well, I'm very curious. If you spent your childhood doing tons and tons of dance and playing softball and added in a little bit of gymnastics and tumbling type stuff in your teens, when did you get into martial arts? So first at about, well, 18, I would say 19, I did a little bit of karate in college, um, mostly just as a, you know, extracurricular class that I needed. My then boyfriend, now husband was doing jujitsu. So I did a little bit of jujitsu with him starting in 99. It was really just his influence that got me into martial arts. And I remember you know, going to like my chiropractor that I'd been seeing, you know, my whole life, basically, and him saying, what in your physical history makes you think jujitsu is a good idea for you? Because he was just concerned that I would injure myself. And, you know, I'm a little bit accident prone, but it's been a wonderful journey. So I'm very glad I didn't, I I did it. I'm glad I didn't listen to him and and quit because I was accident prone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I I find the fact that you're accident prone to be somewhat surprising, given that I sort of imagine you being extremely balanced and coordinated, given all of your physical activities. Yeah, well, now I've been doing jujitsu for 20 years. So, you know, I, I definitely have much better core strength and ability to fall. I fall better than I <laughs> did before. So because I've learned how to like break fall. And yeah, so I'm, I'm, Still kind of accident prone, but less likely to injure, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. I'd like to ask you a little bit more about learning how to fall. That's something that I had some experience with probably a decade ago doing. We had a couple judo instructors come in and teach some specialty seminars and things. And I was in my 40s at that point. And I just had the hardest time allowing myself to fall backwards. So what would your advice be to somebody who wants to learn how to fall safely? So my husband, he's a brown belt in judo, but he got his brown belt in, I believe, 99. And then we opened our school in 2000. So he kind of had to stop training judo before he got his black belt. So he has always, you know, kind of guided us through judo and, and break falls and stuff like that. And my first advice, I guess, would be to start low. So we do side break falls where we're already on our back and we're just kind of falling side to side, like getting the motion of what hits the ground at what point. And then when we're falling straight back, you know, we start, I I say perched like little birdies, or sometimes I say perched like Spider-Man if I'm teaching the kids class, but you know, you start low and then once you work up enough confidence, then you can start, you know, in a squat or you can start standing. And I think building up to that makes it much easier to then, you know, be thrown and fall and not get injured. I love that progression. I think that would have really helped me because I think we just started standing and it's rough. <laughs> that was not fun. <laughs> so why did you get into competition then? And at what point in your, in your career in martial arts, did you decide to compete? Yeah. So I competed a lot in 2004. Um, I was able to, to be training actively and I, you know, wanted to compete. And then I kind of took a little bit of time, not entirely off of jujitsu, but working. So I wasn't training consistently. So I really got back to competition probably 2013 and end up, um, I compete more than almost anyone on our entire team. Like I love to compete for several reasons. Uh, one, I think if you're doing jujitsu, well, no matter what your reason is, but let's say you're doing it from a, for self-defense, no one is going to come after you in class like they will in a competition. So it's really just like that next level of being able to defend yourself. Plus you're adding in the anxiety, the nerves, all of that, and how you can handle that, the adrenaline dump, all of those things. So I think from a self-defense aspect, competition is very important. If you're doing it for health reasons, like if you're doing jujitsu to be healthier, to lose weight, whatever that is, you're never going to train as hard 
or, you know, take as good of care of yourself as you are leading into a competition. And, you know, if you're doing it just for the camaraderie, like some of my just really great friends I've met at tournaments. So there's lots of great benefits to competing and I'm not always great at it. Um, it's funny, you know, I'm, I am a world champion, but also I lose way more than I win, <laughs> but I enjoy the process. I enjoy what it does, you know, the person that it makes me in preparation for competition and getting over the nerves. I was having really bad anxiety competing and being able to get past that makes me feel safer. Yeah, absolutely. I often have people ask me, how how do you learn how to navigate through fear and that sort of stress inoculation of going through experiences where you have anxiety and you have the nerves and you get the opportunity to learn how to manage it, especially the physical response to it, I think is really a good way to learn how to navigate through fear of all sorts, really. Yeah, absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Damsel in Defense. Damsel in Defense creates products that allow you to enhance your safety through items that you either carry on your person or in one of your bags or purses, or the things that you can keep in your home or in your car. Damsel is also involved in fighting human trafficking by creating damsel houses. Currently, there are two, one in Cambodia and one in India, where girls are rescued from sex trafficking. They are given housing and shelter and help to form a plan to build new lives so they no longer have to sell their bodies. The goal for Damsel is to have a home in every country that their partner organization, which is called Destiny Rescue, is rescuing in. I became a Damsel rep not because I really wanted to sell self-defense products, but because so many of my clients wanted to buy them. And I wanted to A give them a good vehicle to buy products that I knew were good quality products that are workable and B because I wanted to be able to provide them with the training that they need to actually learn how to use these products and have a realistic understanding of when they can and cannot be helpful. So I became a Damsel in Defense Pro and if you're interested in checking out their products which cover a wide variety of things everything from stun guns and pepper sprays to coupons and other striking tools and tactical pens with flashlights and a whole lot more, you can access products from Damsel through my website by going to cynthiajolacour.com slash resources. That's where I've highlighted a few of the products that I really appreciate and that I think are a great value. So check those out if you're interested. And if you want to look through the whole Damsel catalog, you can click through from my website to my Damsel Pro site where you can find all their other products, including books and other materials that you can use to work with your children to begin their journey of knowing how to keep themselves safe. Remember, you don't have to be a damsel in distress. You can protect yourself and you can get some help in doing that through Damsel in Defense. So when did your sort of sports mindset start to encompass self-defense and how do you navigate between those two things that are extremely similar, but also different? Like, how do you see the difference and how do you navigate between that? So I'll kind of talk about how I got started teaching self-defense first. Um, So my husband, James, had always taught the self-defense seminars. He did a great job. He's amazing. But we had a big one scheduled with our local police department, and they were opening it up to the public. And he was having surgery, and they rescheduled his surgery for the day before the seminar. And I was like, I've done your seminar a million times. Like, I can just teach it. And there are 120 people there and I taught the seminar and they loved it. They loved it because they could then see that a woman could do these things to a man. It became different than, you know, seeing that James could do it. Like, of course he can, he's a black belt, he's a male, he's strong, he's whatever. So it was very important to them to see that, you know, as what they considered a, you know, weaker female <laughs> would be able to pull off these moves on a bigger, stronger guy. So that's kind of how I got started with it. Um, and I absolutely loved it. And I think there's a lot that goes into me loving it. I love 
the helping people and the making them more aware and all of that. And there is some, you know, performance aspect to it. Like I danced all my life. I love being on stage. So I'm very comfortable speaking in public. Uh, so I really enjoyed that part of it as well. Even when I teach jujitsu, we do a private lesson with every person that comes in the door. And when I teach jujitsu or that private lesson, especially with women, I teach a very self-defense based intro. That's jujitsu is very great for self-defense. It's all about using leverage and technique over strength and size. And we start in what we call our guard, which is someone on their back with someone between their legs. And I tell them, you know, like if a guy is going to attack you, odds are it's take your person and run or it's sexual assault. And with me on my back here, he thinks he's in charge. He thinks he's in the dominant position. And I actually know that I am. From here, I can break his arm. I can choke him unconscious. I can flip him over and come up on top and take off running. So those are the three things we go through. And there's a million different ways that I can break his arm or choke him unconscious or flip him over. But we just do one from each spot. And that's that's how I start everyone off. So the things that we do in jujitsu, even though they are sport-based from a competition aspect, they are very much rooted in self-defense. Everything that I taught in that intro is exactly what I use when I'm rolling in class. Oh, that's that's cool. I, I like that because a lot of times people who teach self-defense coming from a martial arts background really only care about the technique and they don't put them into any context and you start right off by establishing a context. Absolutely. And one of the beauties of jujitsu is that we can train full out. Like I train hard. I train, you know, I can be very aggressive and, but the beauty is the tap, right? You, I get you in an arm bar or I start choking you and you tap and I let go. So then, you know, we can start over. Nobody got injured. Nobody went unconscious and we do it again. So it's, it's nice to be able to train full out. It's why we have tons of police officers that train um, we have a huge women's team, some that come in because they've been assaulted in the past and some, you know, that just don't want that to happen, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, it's great that we're able to really train full out and still be safe. Do you think that women who come in know that they're going to be in a position where they're on their backs with somebody on top of them? Or is that sort of a surprise for some of them when you get started? I think that varies. I mean, I'm sure several people know. I'm sure sometimes people are surprised. (laughs) Um, And I run three women's only classes. So I have some women that will just start in the women's only class because that's where they feel comfortable. Um, And eventually they move into the co-ed class. I don't have any woman currently that only does the women's only class they all move in because there's plenty of women in there. They can still train with just women if they want, but if they want to progress, sometimes it's, it's good to know that, that they can pull off those moves on a bigger, stronger opponent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I asked that question because I remember in my martial arts career, the first time that I had the chance to do grappling and the instructor said, okay, you know, partner up, one of you guys go on your back, the other one, get on, on top. And he showed how to you know get the mount and we went the mount and the guard and I was the one on the bottom and I just loved it. We learned how to do bump and roll and a couple other things. And I was just mm-hmm. like totally jamming going, Oh, this is awesome. This is awesome. And after class, a couple of the yeah. other women said, God, that was really uncomfortable. And I realized that, I mean, that is kind of a woman's nightmare scenario is to be flat on your back with a big dude on top of you in a, you know, position where he can rain down blows or choke you or basically try to immobilize you with his weight, in fact. And for me, it was super exciting because, A, I grew up in a wrestling state. I grew up in Stillwater, Oklahoma. So I went to cowboy wrestling, or should I say wrestling, all the time with my dad (laughs) (laughs) and never had the chance to learn to wrestle because I was a girl. And, you know, all of a sudden in my forties, here it was, it was like, oh, yay, grappling. This is really cool. And as as you were saying, like that sense of power, when you realize like, holy crap, I just did these two things and this dude went flying. It's so exciting. Yeah, Yeah, it's very empowering. And so I think even some of the women that are 
you know, surprised or feel uncomfortable, just when they really, you know, take a look at what's happening and their ability to get out of that position, that it becomes exciting for them. And that's part of why we're doing the private lesson to start, because I want them to realize like, okay, jujitsu is a close quarter sport, right? Like we are going, I'm going to get all in your bubble. And even people who don't like being touched, they don't like hugs, they don't, you know, they're not touchy feely people can still like jujitsu, you just kind of get over that aspect of all right, you're in my bubble, but it's, it's just different. Well, those are the things that sometimes cause people to freeze too, is the incredible discomfort of having somebody in your space, having somebody maybe who smells, having somebody whose breath is like right in your face, and maybe isn't that great. Like those are the things that can make you freeze in a violent encounter. And if you can experience that stuff in a training situation, then you don't have that kind of moment of hesitation and and freezing that you otherwise would have. So even though you're not like articulating that as you're doing the training, that's what they're coming out with. Absolutely. Um, and you know, you kind of attach you know, some muscle memory to things so that you instantly know, like we do like micro drills sometimes where it's the smallest little, um, grip and you just take that grip over and over and over so that instantly, if I have that in front of me, that's the grip I grab. So it's not even that I'm thinking about it because I've drilled it thousands of times. Um, so the muscle memory attached and another part of actually training is learning how to breathe. I see so many people, probably the first six months people are in jujitsu, they hold their breath the whole time that they're trying to pull something off, like while they're trying to squeeze or while they're trying to, you know, knock someone over or sweep someone over, they hold their breath. And so for six months, I'm like, breathe, breathe, breathe. (laughs) And if that happened, like if you didn't have any training and you didn't get to the point where you just naturally would breathe through those things you know, you might pass out in an encounter like that. Yeah, I've seen the same thing sometimes in the scenario training uh, to to watch somebody go through a whole scenario and they'll, they'll do like 10, 15 seconds worth of like intense activity. And then they'll go. (gasps) It's like, yeah, Yeah. you you didn't breathe through that whole thing, did you? And they're like, no, and I didn't scream either. And it's like, yeah, that's because you were holding your breath. (laughs) Yeah. I always, I always joke um, when I teach a choke and they start holding their breath. I'm like, it'd be really embarrassing if you passed out trying to choke me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that would that would be the complete unintended consequence right there. Oh. Yeah. So when you teach a self-defense course, how is that different from what you teach in a jujitsu class? Yeah. So in the jujitsu, obviously I'm teaching more of the ground stuff. I mean, we still do a lot of like wrist breaks and stuff because that's what you do in wrestling. So like when we're standing on our feet, we're still doing a lot of the same things, the same wrist breaks that I would teach in a self-defense class, but obviously we're doing a lot of ground stuff too. Most of what I teach in a self-defense class is obviously awareness. We talk a lot about awareness. Um, I talk about my personal beliefs in why some of the things that maybe they've been taught or told before aren't the best for them. Um, But overall, the goal in a self-defense class is to provide them with an awareness, a little bit of muscle memory, because I teach little things, little funny sayings that will help them remember so they can go home and practice. But it's all about getting away. Um, For the most part, I'm, I'm not really teaching them to fight in that moment. I'm teaching them to try to get away. Oh, right. Yeah. So the goal is not to prove that they're badasses that can kick your ass. It's that they can actually do what's necessary to get them to safety. Right. Right. And I, like uh, I had someone ask me one time, like, well, what would you do in this scenario? And I said, are you asking me what I would do or what I would teach you to do? Because I'm trained. I've been training, like I said, you know, 20 years, I'm, I'm gonna mess someone up. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, if, if you don't have any training, my goal is just to get you to safety. So that starts with the awareness to begin with, that starts with the being able to, you know, get away and run. So what are some of those 
misconceptions or false beliefs that you were referring to about personal safety? What are some of those things that you talk yeah, about? So one thing I talk about is like, I don't, I don't teach eye gouging. Part of that is because when your heart rate gets to just 90 beats per minute, you start losing fine motor skills. So the likelihood that I can use this little weapon against this little target really goes down. Plus, I do believe in muscle memory. I believe in things that you are able to practice over and over and over again. And nobody will let me practice poking them in the eyes. <laughs> so, um, you know, I mean, if if we're in the scramble, if we're in the fight, that might be different. But as far as just standing toe to toe and trying to eye gouge someone, I'm never going to teach that. Uh, you see professional boxers who with a, you know, 10 ounce glove or whatever, miss when trying to hit the head and that's with a big glove and a big head and they still miss sometimes and they've practiced that millions of times so I don't teach eye gouging because I think that the likelihood is low I also don't teach groin shots any of the men that I train with will tell you uh, in the moment they don't really feel it right like the adrenaline is so high for them that they don't feel it they might feel it later they're definitely going to feel it later but in the moment with the adrenaline pumping, it just pisses them off. And you can see that in like UFC fights. Like you go back before groin shots were illegal. Nobody stopped from a groin shot. They kept fighting through it. They didn't care, even if it was multiple, multiple groin shots. But now, because it's illegal, they get kicked in the groin. They're like, oh, God, I have to stop. <laughs> so, um, but when adrenaline's pumping, you just don't feel it. So that's another thing that I, I don't teach. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I, I do teach both of those things, but with a very different perspective, you know, you're right that things like mm -hmm. eye gouges, you can't teach at full speed and you, you can't actually gouge somebody's eye out. But uh, working with Rory Miller, one of the things that he talks about is that in any form of training, you have to introduce some sort of error into the system in order to be able to train safely. Otherwise you only get to train with people once. And so like right. back in, back in my Taekwondo days, the error that was introduced was pulling and missing. So we would, you know, we would practice everything and be like as close as you could possibly get to hitting somebody in the face, but not actually hit them in the face, which mm -hmm. is great. Cause then you get thousands and thousands and thousands of reps of not actually hitting somebody. <laughs> And, um, and so one of the things that Rory uses is he changes time. So you do do all these catastrophic breaks and different kinds of injuries and things, but you do it very, very slowly. And of course you don't yeah. actually take somebody's eye out, but you do build the same sort of mental blueprint. You do build the mechanics and you do have the experience because you've introduced that other flaw so I think it really depends on what kind of a flaw you introduce as to whether or not you can train something. But I, I like your point about the loss of fine motor skills. And that's one of the things that I learned about working with Tony Blower, because uh, his whole system really is based on the fact that when, the, when you have that oh shit moment in an actual attack, like that fine motor stuff basically goes out the window. It's it's just not possible, and it's it's your reptilian brain that's in charge for a while, and eventually that you know the rest of you once once you get mentally, emotionally, psychologically, physically in control, then you can start to access those other tools. But until then, you just you're just really relying on gross motor primal movement. So I, I take your point. And on I think, that. yeah, I think that's you know, like I said, muscle memory is very important that it becomes an innate intelligence that, you know, that instantly do something that I don't even have to think about it. Like it's already happened. <laughs> um, and it goes in, it does end up in kind of that reptilian brain. That's that it's just, this is what I do. You have to practice something to do that, right? Like you have to, you have to practice something over and over in order for that to be something that you innately do. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an interesting blend of things because I think a, a lot of what you teach is the the technique based things that you do have to practice and and the place where I focus more is the stuff that you naturally do and you don't have to practice because it's just part of human nature. 
And it's that blend of the two things that gives you so much power. If you don't have the technical tools, you can still get to safety because, I mean, there's millions of people who have no training whatsoever who have actually successfully defended themselves. But if you do have those tools, you have so much more that you can use. It's like if you have yeah. if you have a firearm or you have pepper spray or you have, you know, the pot of coffee in the kitchen or something, you have more tools available once you are mentally in the fight and once you're in a physical place where you can actually use them. So I, I love that blend of harnessing your natural tools and what your body's going to do anyway with the kind of training that you're talking about because it makes you into a real powerhouse. I mean, you're, you're a great example of that. So what are some of the other misconceptions about personal safety that you encounter? I think, um, I don't know, that's tough. I mean, we talked a lot about like the, the muscle memory and everything. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you run into, you mentioned that you teach about situational awareness. I mean, I find a lot of women kind of think that just means, well, don't look at your phone. What are some of the things <laughs> that you talk about and, and some of the questions that women come to you with about that piece of it? Yeah. I mean, I talk about all kinds of things. Um, you know, we, we talk about the intuition. Also, I am a huge fan of the gift of fear with Gavin DeBecker. I love that book. Uh, but so we talk about the intuition and stuff like that. We obviously talk about things like things you should know, like don't go down a dark alley at two in the morning. You know, those are the simple things, you know, if your headphones are in, if you're listening to music while you're running or whatever, maybe only one headphone. So you can also keep an ear out for what's going on. Things like, you know, I obviously always sit with my, like facing the door of a restaurant. So like if we're in a restaurant, I want to face the door or I want to make sure the person that I'm with that's facing the door is somebody that's paying attention, uh, that, that is watching who's coming in. And I do look around, I evaluate people as far as, you know, just kind of thinking about like, oh, that person, you know, looks like they have a weapon or whatever. Um, and we, we do chem drills, like keep in mind. Uh, so we'll play games like, you know, with our nephews or whatever, where we're like, close your eyes. Okay. How many people are in the room? Uh, what's the person next to you wearing? How many exits are there? Where are the exits? You know, just little things like that, just to try and think about your surroundings. Those are some of the situational things that we're trying to make sure that, you know, you're aware of what's going on all the time. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That I love those games like that too. I, I don't know that I am great at them, but uh, I'm always looking for interesting ways to develop that general awareness of what's going on around me. Is there a place where you learned some of those games? Did you just come up with them you on know, your I own think, or what? Yeah. I mean, I just kind of came up with them on my own. It kind of comes from like at a baby shower or something where we'll bring out the tray and you like have one minute to look at all the little things on the tray and then they cover it up and you have one minute to write down everything you can remember or something like that. So that's basically the same type of thing that we're doing here just with your surroundings instead. <laughs> um, yeah. So just little games like that. I think it's just something we've kind of developed over time and, and play or do ourselves. Yeah, that's cool. I, I have a friend who with his children plays a game that's the sketchy people game, where if they're <laughs> out and about and they notice somebody that looks kind of sketchy, he asks them, what is it about them that is leading you to get that feeling that he's sketchy, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like even just kind of looking around at people and giving them a story, like, oh, those people are here on a date or those people look like they're in a business meeting or just kind of giving them a story that seems appropriate. And, you know, like it, that's when you really, when you do that, you notice people that, that there's tension at their table. You know, he seems like he's angry at her. Like, is she safe? It kind of starts giving you a little bit of background about people. It makes you look, I also am a huge believer in making eye contact with everyone. I think there's a little bit of controversy in this because a lot of women are taught like 
don't make eye contact because then a guy gets the wrong idea. I can tell you, like, people are not getting the wrong idea when I'm making eye contact. I mean, I'm nice, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna make eye contact. I'm gonna smile. I'm gonna nod, but I'm not hitting on them. And I don't present that way at all. But I think of it two different ways. I think of it from the, from the self-defense aspect, people who are doing bad things don't want to be seen, right? Like they don't want you to have noticed them. They don't want you to be able to like have identified who they are beforehand. But then people who are just having a bad day and maybe just need that smile, they need to be seen. It can really change their whole day. So I think no matter whether you're doing it to um, make humanity better or whether you're doing it to be like, all right, but I see you. I make eye contact with everyone. Yeah, that's a powerful tool right there. And and you're right, because there there are a lot of women who think, you know, that it's not safe to do. But it's also not safe to not do sometimes. So Yeah, yeah. And I, I just I don't think it's a good idea to to keep your head down and, you know, get where you're going. I think that keeping your head up and on a swivel is very important. I tell a story uh, a couple of years ago, we were at what's called I'm from Indianapolis, so we have the Indy 500 here. It's a huge event, but there's a thing called Carb Day, and there's a big concert. And I'm there with my little brother and his friends, and they're like mid twenties. You know, I'm this you know pushing forty year old woman at the time. And uh, one of the boys turns to my brother and said, "I always feel safe with your sister. Like her head is on a swivel." <laughs> it's just funny that these you know mid twenty year old men are feeling safe because I'm the one looking out for them. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. You know, when you were talking about creating stories about people, you you reminded me of an exercise that we did. Uh, recently, I went to Violence Dynamics Prime, which is a big annual gathering of people who are part of the Violence Dynamics community with Rory Miller and Tammy Yard McCracken, who was on my podcast and a couple other great coaches. And the wrap up day, the last day of the of the course is going to the Mall of America and people watching and doing different drills and things in the mall. And that was one of the things that we did. We, we went out and we just watched different collections of people and tried to figure out like what their relationship was and what exactly was happening in the moment for them. And it was absolutely fascinating because we, we actually saw one group of people where we were really hard put to come up with a, reasonable explanation for what we were seeing because it was a group of four so an adult man an adult woman and two toddlers and the toddlers looked as though they probably belonged to both of those adults Um, they were mixed race but there was another person who was with the group so it was clearly part of the group, but totally didn't fit because he was a teenager, redheaded teenager. So I was, I can't remember exactly. I think it was a black man and an Asian woman, the two kids who looked like a blend, and then this redheaded teenager. And like, we were just like, God, like, what is, what exactly is the connection here? How, how does he fit into the group? Because we could come up with reason, you know, reasonable explanations for them and just watching what they were doing, it looked like a mother, father, two kids unit. And it was, it was so funny that it took us such a long time to come up with an explanation for why this teen boy was also sort of in the periphery of the group and clearly had a connection, but was playing a totally different role. And I think the explanation we finally landed on was he must be the son of the woman, but not of the man. So maybe from a previous marriage or previous relationship or something. And I just... I had such a blast because I didn't realize how many subtle cues about relationship and status and belonging or not belonging we actually do pick up on when we're out and about and and just take a look at people. Has that been your experience too? Like what are the kinds of things that you see? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's interesting just to just to take the time to do it and things that I think people don't notice people enough. They don't notice the person that 
is in need of help or in need of, you know, just a friendly gesture. So I think that's one of the things I notice the most is somebody that, you know, just maybe needs a compliment, needs a, you know, I love your hair or those shoes are so cute or whatever. And so I think noticing people that, you know, I mean, obviously it's good to notice people that are creepers. <laughs> that's, that's what the point of, you know, uh, the self-defense aspect is, but I'm all about, you know, trying to make people happier and feel better as well. So I think that's an important part of, of really paying attention to the people around you is just being able to put a smile on someone else's face too, or notice, you know, like if somebody maybe isn't, um, you know, creeping on you, but is creeping on someone else. Uh, if you notice somebody that looks like they're following a woman to a car or, you know, harassing her or whatever. So th- those are some things that you might notice as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one reason why we pay less attention now is because most of us spend a lot more time isolated in our little homes, our little boxes in front of screens. So we're we're kind of yep. losing a lot of the community time and the out in public time that we used to have. So I think the kind of thing that you're talking about is a great antidote to that. It's it's keeping keeping up that skill and awareness of noticing what's going on around you and really looking at people. Uh, I love that part of your motivation for doing that is being able to recognize when there's somebody that you can lift up or land a hand to. So I'm wondering kind of in that vein, what your thoughts are on being a courageous bystander or, you know, if you see something going on that is sketchy, wrong or dangerous or just flat out, like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. What what do you advise women to do if they're in that situation of observing something going bad? Yeah, so I'm cautious to advise others, you know, what to do. I definitely want them to, if they think something's wrong, call the police. Like, I don't think that they should necessarily, you know, step in or anything like that. Like I'm not trying to put them in danger. Um, but I do think that it is important that if, you know, if you see something, say something, right. But that you are warning authorities and saying, you know, like I saw this, this man, I saw this vehicle, whatever that looks like. Um, so that they're, they can, you know, report on it, look out for it, whatever. I think that's very, very important. You know, I'm definitely the person I, I believe I am that uh, I, I'm going to step in and trying to help somebody. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky thing. And I think one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you that question is because we live in the age where if something kicks off and somebody's being abused or beaten or attacked, there are a lot of people who just whip out their phones and start videoing, but they don't actually take action to generate any kind of help whatsoever. You know, they're not calling 911. They're not actually intervening to help if that's possible. They're just like, oh, wow, look at this cool thing. We're going to video it and stream it. Yeah. Yeah. It's That's terrible. I mean, um, it's uh, good from the standpoint of having evidence. <laughs> but as far as, you know, as far as not helping somebody, I think that's, I think it's atrocious. Like, I think, you know, there's all kinds of stories of people being attacked and all of the witnesses either all standing there videotaping or just watching or whatever, and no one trying to help or call someone to help. And I, I think that's awful. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. And, and my advice to women is pretty much in line with yours. You know, it's you can do something that will improve the situation. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to physically intervene. But you can for sure do something. Uh, So do it. Because if that were you on the receiving end, you would want somebody who was observing it to take action to to help you. Exactly. Okay, so I'm curious what the sort of must know concepts or strategies and tools you believe women need to have to feel safe or to not just to feel safe, but to actually be safe. What are those concepts? Well, starting with awareness, 
That's always the first thing. And that's um, always what I'm most thankful for, for even if, you know, I don't agree with other people's, you know, what they're teaching in self-defense, I appreciate anyone that is teaching awareness. Um, I think that's very important. I also, you know, I think about all aspects of it. I think about the clothes that I'm wearing, you know, I, I'm not really one to wear heels. I'll wear wedges because I can run in a wedge. <laughs> I can, you know, like I, I've taught many self-defense seminars in wedges and a dress and just to, you know, cause I will teach like professionals and I want to be like, this is, you can do this even dressed nicely, but everything from, you know, how you dress and how you interact with people to actually learning self-defense. Um, I think a self-defense seminar is great as an introduction um, but I think that you need more than that. I think you need further training for confidence as much as for self-defense. They say that people who are able to defend themselves are less likely to be attacked for several reasons, because they're more aware, but also because they're more confident. And so they are not easy targets. Yeah, they carry themselves completely differently. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, my my younger daughter had an experience recently where I believe that it was the fact that she carries herself differently that was the deterrent. She she's like a primo target. She's tiny. I think. Well, you met her at the uh, at the girl live event, and um, she's tiny, and she doesn't look like she could really do much damage. But she was in a situation where she noticed there was something going on. There was a guy approaching and. She was in a pretty isolated spot and she turned around and, and met him at the doorway with her laundry basket between them and just looked him in the eye and said, you know, can I help you with something? And he was clearly not expecting to be met by somebody who could stand confidently, look him in the eye, engage him and not be scared. So it was her presence right. and, and what she did, I think, that was the deterrent. So I, I love that part of what you teach people is that having this knowledge is something that makes a really intangible difference, but it makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And this is kind of a little bit off topic, but kind of in the same realm. I had a, a college student that was training with me and she was talking about how much jujitsu helped her confidence even though she wasn't, you know, or she didn't feel like she was, you know, the, the perfect girl. (laughs) Um, And she, she would just say, you know, I see all these, you know, these pretty fit girls. And I think, well, I could beat you up. So (laughs) So I just have this confidence. She's like, it's fine. You can be prettier than me, but I I could take you if we had a fight. So (laughs) it's it's funny, um, the different ways that confidence shows up from from training. Well, how do you see women's relationships to their bodies changing as they train with you? Yeah, it's amazing. It, it changes because they stop looking at themselves as needing to be what society thinks they should be. And instead know that their body is a tool you know, they get to the point where they're like, I don't care what I weigh aside from, you know, like if I'm trying to compete in a certain division or something like that, but they no longer care about what they weigh and exactly what it looks like. They care about what their body can do. And that's an amazing transformation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there are so many, especially younger women, but not just younger women, there's so many women who see their body as an enemy or as something that lets them down, betrays them, causes them distress and to go through this kind of training and discover that your body actually is this powerful, powerful ally and this wonderful gift that you, that you have is a complete transformation in, in your relationship and, and in your appreciation, you know, going from sort of a a lot of women and including me, I had this was just kind of a disgust and a dissatisfaction with my physical being and learning really what I was capable of just made all the difference. Absolutely. Another thing I'm curious about is when you work with women who have already experienced sexual assault or another kind of violence, how do you work with them and what sort of transformation do you see with them? 
it's definitely individual. I have experienced women that can participate in jujitsu without any trigger. And then they'll do a self-defense seminar and be triggered about it. And then, you know, sometimes it's the other way around. So it's, it is absolutely individual. No person is the same. Um, So you just have to provide a safe space for them and allow them to have their own journey. And I tell all, especially my women, like, this is your journey. If there's ever someone that you don't feel comfortable training with, you don't have to train with them. Um, And I tell them, you know, like that, you know, if the women are safe, but even if you don't feel comfortable training with one of the women, you don't have to. So I just provide the safe space and I try to help them individually. That's best. There can't be one cookie cutter way that we deal with assault because everybody experiences it differently. Um, Whether it was a stranger or your best friend, or, you know, you, you just have to take it from an individual standpoint. Yeah, that's great. I, I love that you do work with women who have already experienced something because I also in working with, with survivors of violence and trauma have found that going through a process like this can be very healing, but you're right. Absolutely. It is, yeah, it is absolutely dependent on the individual, what path you take and, and how, what speed you move at and what order you do things. But ultimately, it really yeah. can be very, very beneficial. And that's why I think like, you know, we do the women's only classes because sometimes that's where women feel mo- most comfortable starting out because they, you know, will know that they're only with other women. They can talk about issues that only other women would understand. And then, you know, if they reach a point where they're comfortable, then they can move into the co-ed class. But we don't make them do that either. Like if they, if they got to a point where they never felt comfortable, that's fine. They can stay in the women's class. They're going to learn just as much, um, just not as fast (laughs) because there's not as much opportunity, but it's why I think it's one of the reasons why it's important um, to have the women's only classes. Most jujitsu schools don't offer that. And then the other side is the competition. You know, most women don't get to train with other women. And so when they go out and compete, it's completely different. Women move differently. Uh, they fight differently. So if you haven't had that opportunity to train with other women, then competition is harder. Um, which is, you know, obviously another reason why we provide the role model camp, because we want women from all over, whether they train with a huge women's team or they're the only girl at their school to be able to join in on this community. Well, that was a perfect, perfect transition there. Cause my next question was, tell me about the camp. Okay. So I think this is our seventh camp coming up. I went to a, a women's only camp in Tennessee that my friend Rachel Casillas put on several years ago. And um, it's funny how far I've come because when I was introducing myself at that camp, I was shaking so loud. You could hear my pants rattling. Um, (laughs) But I knew I was like, we have to provide something like this. Like I want to do this. So we started a camp that very next year, I believe. Uh, And at first it was who of my friends can teach. (laughs) And it was, you know, a smaller camp. We had probably about 50 women at the first one camps beyond that. We had, you know, between like 60 to 80 women would be normal. This last year uh, in 2019, we sold out in January and people were blowing my phone up. Like, is it really sold out? Is it really sold out? And so we were like, okay, add 10 more spots. And it sold out immediately. And I was like, Oh God, <laughs> like, okay, we're, we're out of room. Um, so we rented a larger facility and ended up with 160 women. And it, it was just such a phenomenal experience. It's amazing what an uplifting environment it is. There were no, you know, fights or cattiness and, not a one of the women said there were too many people here. Even the introverts, none of them said it was too many people. And so, like I said, we started planning immediately how we could make 2020 better. And so we're doing it at a hotel this time. I've rented basically an entire wing of this um, convention hotel. I think we have like five rooms all together. Three of them will be for the women. And then one will be for 
the next gen girls. So we're opening it up to uh, eight to 14 year olds to do this next gen thing too. And then we'll have one room that is just full of women's gear. Uh, women's gear is kind of hard to, to find. Um, most schools don't carry gear. You order stuff online, it doesn't fit. It's just a pain. So we'll have all vendors for women's gear. So it's, it's going to be amazing. We still have one more instructor um, that we're announcing and um, we're doing during Friday during the day, um, we're doing different stuff like, you know, how to program your lifting and jujitsu. Um, we're doing nutrition and weight cutting for tournaments. We're doing a session on like self-defense and how to build a women's team. So it's, it's, it's just going to be epic. And I cannot tell you how excited I am every day leading up to it. It's just such a cool idea. And I'm curious, like, are most of the women who come already pretty well established on their jujitsu path? Or do you have newbies who come or women that have never done any kind of jujitsu? Like what's the, what's the population? Yeah, it really, really varies. Um, definitely like white belts or newbies are the ones we have the most of. Um, they probably represent more than half of camp. Um, but then we have women, you know, blue through black belt that are there attending as well. We have women that start their jujitsu journey at camp. It's a lot of information. Like even if you're a black belt, you're almost drowning in the information. It's, it's a, it's a lot, it's a long weekend, but it's just uh, so empowering. And we're going to do a session Friday night. That's like an intro to jujitsu. And so I'm going to take all the women that are, you know, maybe their first year in um, or brand new beginners. And we'll just talk about like different drills and different positions. And that way you don't feel as lost the rest of the weekend. And then we have lots of, you know, social things planned as well to kind of bring the group together and empower the women. And yeah, so it's going to be great, whether it's your first day or you've been training 20 years. So it sounds like there's quite a bit of like educational components to it in terms of you know, doing the self-defense and the nutrition and, and getting together a team and things like that. How much of the yeah, so camp is physical? That, yep. Um, so the, the educational portion is just Friday. Um, that's a bonus session. Basically we'll start at like 10 AM and end at four. Um, and then five o'clock that night is when we have like our actual opening ceremonies and into most of the rest of the weekend is physical. We have four female black belts coming in to teach and they'll each do like a two and a half, three hour session. Um, plus there will be some open mat times. Um, so it's, it's a lot of physical and you just do what you can, you know, like if, if you're not able to, you know, if, if Saturday night you need to take some time off and you just want to sit and take notes, that's perfectly fine. It, like I said, it's your journey. And um, I stand by that for camp too. <laughs> so you, you know, you want to be there as much as you can to get in as much as you can. But if you feel like you need a break, that's fine too. Oh, sounds awesome. I'm so glad I already got my ticket because I can't wait to, to go. And I think sort of circling back to your favorite self-care practice, <laughs> it sounds as though bubble baths with lots of Epsom salts and Arnica might be a good thing to do during the camp. Yeah, I should call the hotel and see if the rooms have tubs or showers because that would be <laughs> that might be very important. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, well we're we're almost through our time, but I have one more question to ask you, and that is, how do you think women can develop their own personal power and courage? Yeah, I think um, you know, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's surrounding yourself with the right people. I think it's empowering others as well. And I think it's finding what makes you feel good, whether that's, you know, like something, something that helps you improve and makes you feel good. So for me, that's absolutely jujitsu. I learn things every single day and I definitely feel empowered through that, which makes me more courageous. And yeah, I think that's, I think that's it. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Well, before we, before we say goodbye, I want to ask you if you can share how people can get in touch with you and we'll put all of your links and everything in the show notes, but 
if you can just let people know how they can follow up with you and also how they can find out about the camp. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm AJ Klingerman everywhere. That's Klingerman with a C, whether that's Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, AJ Klingerman. (laughs) Um, And they can find out at the camp. Um, They can message me, obviously, in any of those places. But if they go to the fight hub, that's hub.com, that's where they can get registered for camp. And we have the registration for uh, the women and the children on there. And you can actually do like a down payment if you just want to pay, you know, part of it now and the rest of it later, that's possible too. Or they can find some more information on Facebook as well. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and all of the things that you do. And I, I'm so grateful that you were able to get here that we actually did manage to connect finally. I think this is attempt number three to get this recording done, (laughs) but uh, I just, I, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I'm so grateful that you were willing to come on. And I think that you have shared a whole bunch of stuff that I'm, I'm definitely going to go back and listen to this and you've given me a lot of food for thought too. So I'm sure that our listeners are going to take away quite a lot from this discussion. Good. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and be sure to share it with your friends. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and a review. Tune in regularly for more exciting insights and wisdom on women, violence, and safety. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.